Michael Dobbs invented Francis Urquhart, that loathsome slug, that slimy politician, even worse than the real ones. And then he went on to invent Goodfellow, who was superficially more good, but probably even more chaotic. Whispers of betrayal features Goodfellow. And in that, there's this little bit that the whips keep little codes of the external entanglements of their members. Does that really happen? FU1 and FU2, um, family unaware and uh, fundamentally unsound, um, <laughs> or various other things. Yes. That, uh, um, is that true? Well, um, I, you know, I don't, I don't think the whips are, are quite um, sensitive enough to actually designate them FU1 and FU2. Um, <laughs> Uh, that's o, OI1 and OI2, ongoing involvement, and, and all sorts of other things that I've um, invented. But basically, yes, it's true, the whips have a little log of what everybody is doing, to whom, where they're doing it, how they're doing it. The, the, the first experience, real revelatory experience I had was when I was a young man with a, a whip in the bar of the, the House of Commons in the Strangers Bar and he'd had a few too many and he took me around the entire room telling me what they were all doing and some of them were really quite surprising. All of them um, <laughs> were, were honourable gentlemen and uh, many of them ended up in the cabinet. <laughs> you say in here that politics is all engrossing. It's almost an exact quote I think. You were engrossed in politics yep. at one time. Were you all engrossed? Yes. Great mistake. Great mistake. But yes, you know, you step inside the palace of Westminster and it's like the world closes around you, the doors lock, and you think, you know, you spend a little while there because it's so full of passions, it's so full of colour, it's so full of emotions, it's so full of power, at least seeming power, that you tend to think that they actually do run the world and you don't need to get into the, the rest of the world in order to uh, you, you know, run a real life. And it becomes a bit of an ivory tower. And that's why politicians, so many politicians, end up breaking the rules because they make the rules and therefore they think that if they make them, they can break them too and then rebuild them. And that's why so many politicians end up doing incredibly daft things. And the best politicians are always those who manage to step back from the whole thing and see it for the, 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 the wonderful thing that it is and also the ludicrous thing that politics are. But you could be a party leader by now, couldn't you? <laughs> well, uh, looking around, I, I don't think I would ever want to be a, a party leader. Um, but, Char but, but Charles Kennedy stopped me in the street the other day and seemed desperate to talk to me, as if, you know, as if nobody else would talk to him. And I suspect that's what happens to party leaders nowadays. They get cut off too. You know, I mean, they, they, they're all young men, the party leaders of the three major parties right now. They should be having a good time, um, you know, feet up, learning more about life, new experiences. Instead, they're stuck in the, the, these backfilled rooms with all these terribly dull, um, unctuous people around them. And no, I wouldn't want to be a party leader. But there was a time when you did. Ah, yes, yes. Well, I grew up. <laughs> let's, let's, let's examine Goodfellow for a mm. moment. Pushing 50? Yep. Um, and he's a parent? Mm. Single parent, effectively. Yes, because, well, I mean, he, he had a spouse. What happened? Uh, he, um, this is, what I try to do, particularly with Goodfellow, is to remind people that behind the, the, the facade of politics, there's always uh, a real life, um, and often a very difficult and turbulent life. You know, we all have difficult and turbulent lives at times. Politicians have them too, but often in spades. In his case, 
Um, he had a, a young son and a young daughter. He was supposed to have been taking his young son swimming on holiday, but he was too busy with his ministerial red boxes. And as a result, the son went swimming on his own and drowned. And so big guilt, I mean huge guilt. This is where politics really does get to people, where they, they, they end up, uh, and this happens. You, you know, there are plenty of people in politics right now who have that real sense of guilt that they have desperately let down the people they love because of that job. And uh, as a result, his, uh, his wife simply can't take it emotionally and ends up uh, full-time care in a nursing home, uh, effectively an emotional vegetable, just withdrawn from the world. More guilt to deal with, plus the bills for that to deal with, plus the fact that he now has a, a 16, 17, 18-year-old daughter. Who he loves. Who he absolutely loves, but she's a teenage daughter. Um, he can't take care of her on a full-time basis himself. So she has to go to boarding school. She feels as if she's being pushed away. And his life is, um, is desperately problematic. And then there's Elizabeth. Ah, the girlfriend. Mm. Well, that's even more, uh, more, more problematic. I mean, oh, I, she seems nice. I mean, do you like when, her? Yes, when you, when you mm. conjure up women, you do do good ones. The research I mean, that, can be exhausting. <laughs> yes. I mean, I haven't forgiven you for what the awful thing you did mm. for the House of Cards girl. What was she called? Matty. Matty, the mm. beautiful Matty. Yes, she was. And I, I have to tell you, when I, when I first, uh, when the BBC made that, that wonderful series, House of Cards, and um, the cast sort of trooped into the room, they had done it so well that I, even without being introduced, I knew who they were. That's Francis. That's Matty. And, of course, I'd spent several years at that point being desperately in lust with Matty. And there she was, made flesh. Susanna Harker, a beautiful lady, wonderful actress. And I was reduced to a gibbering English wreck. <laughs> Good. Yes. Excellent. But this one, this uh, Elizabeth, now she's, uh, she's in the catering business. Yes, she runs a, runs a restaurant uh, in Westminster. And it's based on a real one? Yes, it is. Um, there's a wonderful restaurant in Westminster run by a friend of mine called um, Pomegranates. Uh, which is a, a little further away from the actual centre of Westminster than, than is the Kremlin, which is the, the restaurant in the book. Um, but, you know, I've sat there with him on, on several occasions just watching how restaurants run or don't run and listening to the despair of a restaurateur who are, they all seem to be living on desperately dangerous margins at times and yet loving the job. So uh, it seemed to me to be an excellent opportunity to do lots of research in a very fine restaurant. <laughs> you see, I learn things from reading your books. Not only that, but I learn because Goodfellow goes around on a bike, mm -hmm. it's only two miles from Marble Arch to the Barbican, you say? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Have you done that research? Yes, I have. I have indeed. And I researched all that very... Because it struck me as being... Um, uh, a little Why does it take could... five hours in the cab then, <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's London. That's, uh, that's John Prescott for you. That's Ken Livingston for you. And, and indeed, that's my, um, uh, that's my guys in the book who screw up London. But... Um, uh, no, it's, it is absolutely, um, if you ride straight down uh, Oxford Street, at the end of Oxford Street, you're practically there. Mm. Yeah. I'm, bringing, I'm bringing this in because your book really centres around the vulnerability mm. of a modern city. Yep. That's the driving force. Yes, isn't it? absolutely. Well spotted, thank you. Yes, no, it, it is absolutely it. And the, it could, in the book, it's the city of London, but mm. it could, presumably could be Manhattan. Yes. Could be any major metropolis. Now this is a serious worry, isn't it? Mm. What, what are you worried about? Well, if we take London as just as the mm. focus of uh, the discussion, because as you say, it could be any modern technological city. 
you know, which is run by computers where everything interlocks. Um, we've already seen, I mean, there's a strange feeling in London at the moment that because the IRA have gone for their ceasefire that once more it's safe to be in a city like this. Well, sadly, it's not because nowadays cities are, are so complex and they are so dependent upon a few vital services which very few of us understand, particularly computers, that um, we saw just the other week. The London, love bug. The love bug. Um, London and many cities were grinding to a halt. The Palace of Westminster computer crashed. The whole system crashed because of uh, terrorism down the telephone wires. The whole of the centre of London at the moment is being dug up. Chaos in the centre of London because they're throwing these, these wires um, down under the surface straight into offices, straight into banks, straight into people's homes. And they are extraordinarily vulnerable. So vulnerable that some poorly trained chap in the Philippines, the other side of the world, with very little training, can screw up the entire system. And it's going to happen. It's going to happen more and more frequently. And what I think is, you know, if they, if they were cars, the government wouldn't allow them out on the road, these, these things. Because they say, no, 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 you, you cannot possibly launch or manufacture and sell something which is as dangerous as that. But the sad thing is that computer companies, which are making extraordinary profits, I mean, they're the most profitable companies in the world, are putting so little into actually making sure that their systems are safe. And the love bug will happen time and time and time again. Yes, I mean, I take what you say, but you say the love bug. In, you'd have been a damn good politician, you know. You've got all the delivery there, you know. And I'm thinking, yes, yes, he's right. But then I'm also thinking, well, if they, those politicians weren't so bloody vain that if, if somebody comes in saying, I love you, what, somebody loves me? I've got to look. It came on my computer and I thought, this is so far-fetched. I put it in the bin. Yes. <laughs> well, I do agree. It, it is astonishing that it was the, the Palace of Westminster, which was one of the main things that, that crashed, simply because everybody there was desperately trying to... To be loved. Who, who loved them, yes. It's, uh, um, <laughs> it's rather pathetic, really. It is. But, but um, you know, there, there are... Um, to go back to the, 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 the whole <laughs> back to your idea. sermon, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, and uh, you know, I was I was horrified. It appears that at least somebody has read the book because you know we we had uh, uh, we have instance in the book where you know London is brought grinding to a halt by a demonstration where where Trafalgar Square is occupied. Mm. Well, that happened just the other week too. Um, but that's the traditional way. That's the easy way. I mean, you, you're bringing London grinding to a halt with a bicycle pump. You know, you know a series of bikes just scattered around the place or whatever. But it's so much easier and potentially so much more um, fascinating in the fictional terms, but also frightening in real terms to think that, hang on, there's, there's somebody out there who's gunning for us. And if he decides to just do a little bit of homework, as that chap in the Philippines did, anything could happen. Yes, but the, the chap in the Philippines apparently lives in a tenement and he's young and whatever. The guy in here, the bad guy, or the guy who screws it up. I mean, I can't see him as all bad, can you? Not at all. I think he's a, I think he's a great hero. He's, he's wrestling with honour, and his motivations are all... Uh, well, they're mixed, but basically either they are much more decent than those of the politicians he's dealing with. <laughs> yes. You're subversive, aren't you? <laughs> I wish, I wish. <laughs> he's Amadeus. Mm. Now, um, how did Goodfellow and Amadeus get together? Well, Amadeus is a, uh, he's a military hero. He's a Colonel Peter Amadeus, former paratrooper, um, 
Falklands veteran, spent his entire life working to defend the country, has been to every hotspot that the British Army has fought in over all of those years, and is suddenly thrown on the scrap heap. That is his motivation. Um, a, a man who, and you f many people go through that, who find that l life has betrayed them for no reason at all, for certainly nothing that he's done. It's desperately unfair. And the reason that, that, that he and, and, and Goodfellow um, get together is partly because Amadeus is attacking the government that Goodfellow is a, a member of, or at least a, a backbench member of. But also they turn out to have been childhood school friends. A bit of a coincidence, um, but uh, not entirely uh, untoward. I mean, you know, I suspect you keep bumping into people from your past lives. Um, it, it happens all the time. I don't want you to ask too much about Well, I thought, uh, <laughs> I thought I'd put you on the defense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a mean trick. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> what I, lo I look forward to a Michael Dobbs book, because I don't know, you meet politicians sort of off duty, they're usually fairly entertaining, aren't they? If you can, they usually... Some of them are incredibly pompous. I mean, some of them are like those barrage balloons that you sort of, <laughs> you know, as soon as they start huffing and puffing, you expect to have to tether them to the ground. But, but yes, I mean, many politicians, a mixed bunch, but many of the politicians are, uh, are, actually many politicians, I don't want to shock you, but many politicians are honorable and decent people trying to do the decent thing. They don't always succeed, but deep down they are often well motivated, like Tom Goodfellow. That was Michael Dobbs, the man who invented Francis Urquhart, the man behind House of Cards, who then went on to invent Thomas Goodfellow. And he was talking to me 21 years ago about the new Goodfellow book, which was called Whispers of Betrayal. And he was talking about politics as it was then and the way that London was then. London has probably changed, but have politicians. I'm David Freeman. This is the Author Archive podcast. <laughs>